Hello and welcome to Talking Moves, a podcast from Greenwich Dance where dance artists come together to talk about their work and practice, the things that matter and the issues which move them. I'm Melanie Precious and in this episode I'll be talking to two artists about making work for the outdoors. Artists have long been making work to animate places and spaces and there is much for them to consider when they do. The work has to sit within the setting, engage with passers-by who perhaps are not expecting or even asking to be engaged with. But with the pandemic having closed theatres down for the best part of 2020 and now into 2021, many artists and venues are looking to the outdoors as part of our road to recovery. So today I'm going to be asking two choreographers who have been making outdoor work for many years what they think about as they embark upon the creative process of making alfresco theatrical experiences for their audiences. I'm joined by Frauke Reghardt, director and choreographer, and Luca Silvestrini, artistic director of Luca Silvestrini's Protein. So Frauke, you created Electric Hotel, I think in 2009, and Luca, Invisible Dancing, 2010, if that's right, and you did something called El Fresco in 2005. So you've both been making outdoor works for a long time. What first prompted you to create work for the outdoors? Frauke. Well, it didn't occur to me that that was an option. And then I was sort of match made by Emma Gladstone and Kate McGrath from Fuel with David Rosenberg. He had the beginning of an idea for an outdoor show which became Electric Hotel and he wanted to work with dancers so he required a choreographer. That was the beginning of our now I think the 11 year collaboration as Ragbat and Rosenberg. So when I speak of outdoor work I speak of the work that I do mm-hmm. as Ragbat and Rosenberg. Yeah so he came with this idea of doing a show using a vertical plane as a playing space and it was um, about having an audience sort of looking from the outside in as um, voyeurists, I suppose. There was a voyeuristic element about it. And I thought that immediately that there was a great potential to work differently with choreography within that kind of space. Yeah, so we came up with this idea of what then became a hotel consisting of four or five shipping containers, a sort of modernist style hotel that looked incredibly permanent, but was actually a temporary structure that went on tour. And so there was this real opportunity to choreograph in a very different way and to really shape what the experience might feel like outside the context of the known theatre environment. So I was delighted. And that was the beginning of my outdoor work. Yeah. And that's so interesting because actually you're creating, we're going to dig down into this a little bit later, almost like a new venue in that outdoor space. But Luki your work has often taken slightly different tact and is cited more within the setting. I wonder what prompted you to start making your work for outdoors? It started, actually, the first, very first one, it was in 2000. Then Bettina and I, the other half of Protein at that time, we were asked to make a community-based project outside in a garden, in a park, actually. And that was our first time to work outdoors. And it was fascinating. We loved every minute of that. It was so nice to to have your working day work, uh, day office outdoors, especially mm-hmm. it was in Italy, beautiful weather and all that. And then there was a few other uh, opportunities along the way, mainly for film. And then it came, actually it was thanks to David Massingham that commissioned me to make an outdoor piece for the High Street in Birmingham for uh, Birmingham International Dance Festival in 2008. And that became 
on display because it was for the, it, it was for the Alice Street, and the idea was to surprise people with elemental performance. So mm. we use shop windows and other performances which look like spontaneous or incidental uh, performances along the high street and then in 2010 i got another commission from david uh, for the same festival and this time was invisible dancing which was a, a much bigger project with community involvement and all that and yes for me it all started from the high street actually with a very populated dense uh, sort of space very already animated space and the architecture and the environment, the people, the spaces, the surfaces became the actual set. So I, mm-hmm. I never built a set to, to put in, a, in an open space like Frauke did. Yeah. So for me, that those were the elements to play with, actually, the life of the high street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, we talked in a recent podcast, actually, to Anthony Misson of Company Chameleon, and he talked about his decision to start doing work outdoors as being part of a mission to take cultural opportunities to everyone, so reaching people that wouldn't dream of setting foot in a theatre. And I wondered how true that was or is for both of you. Well, for me, that was exactly that. I think I was the commission was about doing something for free to take it out in a public space and fully accessible, and trying to empower actually people because when you do something in someone's place, you actually celebrate that space, you empower people. So that was actually the remit of the project. Driving force. And how about you, Franca? Your work set up slightly differently. So does that play into your decision to do work outdoors? Um, I think it's a benefit of working outdoors. I'm not sure if it was a part of the decision-making process as I wasn't so aware of mm-hmm. what would happen with that. <laughs> but uh, yes, that's definitely an interesting and lovely part to get new audiences that stumble across for us, it's like there's suddenly a large structure that wasn't there before and attracts a huge amount of attention. Or with Motor Show, there were 11 cars and people could just watch it without listening to the sound. Yeah. You know, all our outdoor work are headphone shows. So you can see it without headphones. And lots of people did that because the way Motor Show was presented in Brighton, there was a long ledge that people could sit on and they then became part of the scenery too. So there's an element of that. Even the moon in Electric Hotel, it really felt like we kind of hired the moon to show up. You must let us know how much that costs. (laughs) What is beautiful as well, that is actually the public becomes part of the show and everything that is there seems to be part of it, you know, when it's not, Mm. whether it's pets or anything that can happen or weather Mm. conditions that sometimes are favourable, sometimes not. But sometimes it could be very lovely to have like a rainbow behind you or something spectacular as that. And so gorgeous to be animating the places and spaces with art. It it makes it so visible, doesn't it, as we take our stuff outside. Now, I thought I'd clear this up right at the beginning because vocabulary sometimes means nothing and sometimes it's absolutely everything. And I wondered, when you describe your work, do you use the terminology outdoor work or do you call it site-specific or is there something else? So you're responding to the setting, but actually, you, Frauke, you're taking your own self-contained world with you. So does outdoor work cut it in terms of a, a description? I do refer to it as outdoor work, although when I think of outdoor work, obviously that's quite broad. So I do think, David and I, we found a particular niche. Sometimes what happens with outdoor work, I think that 
one of its great potential is that you can stumble across something. And with us, we do want people to sit down and the sort of binaural sound recordings that we use offers an incredible focus. And we do want people to concentrate and sit through the whole thing. Although there's a sense of spectacle, ultimately, sometimes what happens is quite intricate and people really do have to pay attention. And the headphones make it quite a solitary experience. You're kind of isolated from your mates. And that helps with some of the themes that we work with that are sort of more on the existential side, isolation, loneliness or trauma or, mm. you know, what it means to be alive in a wider sense. And yeah, and it definitely helps with kind of focus where energy yes. can easily be lost with yeah. the environment. And, and Luca, how about you? I mean, invisible dancing is definitely, well, I would have thought is a site specific work, but do you use that terminology or do you err towards something else? It's very true. I mean, it depends what you write or for what how in what context so outdoors it becomes very easy to to speak about the outdoors because you already say to people that this is happening where is happening and then in terms of uh, practice and intervention I, I quite like the word site sensitive or site responsive because you do respond to the space I know it sounds a little bit more sophisticated you know people might go what what is that but in a way you are responding to a space and to space and people that actually are in that in that space that's a lovely terminology because actually site specific you know with the word specific it makes it feel like it's specific to that particular town square that particular castle grounds or you know whatever it might be but site responsive gives you that idea of this is a touring thing it can happen anywhere it can be adapted for this new space I think that's really interesting as people perhaps are listening to this thinking about how they might approach this so of course some of this work is ticketed and I think particularly with yours Frauke with a temporary venue having been created outside and I find this quite interesting particularly with us now living through the pandemic because I noticed that with track and trace last year GDIF, so Greenwich and Docklands International Festival's programming, nearly all of that was ticketed, whereas perhaps much of that might have been more open to people just passing by and joining in as they wanted to. But there was this need to be able to count people and trace people. And I wondered at what point in the making process do you have those conversations internally about whether you're going to ticket your work or not? Because it seems to me that it does dictate what that overall experience might be. Luca, has that come up for you? Well, so far, so far, all you know, on display, uh, invisible dancing, and also windows in progress that we did with the Opera House in the Piazza. Those were all free events, so they were not ticketed. You didn't have to book anything. But we are soon to make a new work outdoor this summer, and of course, we are thinking about booking. Probably, it's going to be free, but still because we have to regulate the traffic a little bit more because of the situation we're in. So we might need to have a, a group of people that doesn't go beyond a certain amount. So that's why it's becoming possibly this time around an obligation, you know, more than mm. a choice. But yeah, before now, I never had to think about that. It changes the feel, doesn't it? I know with Invisible Dancing, am I right in thinking this? You would publish times. So you'd be encouraging people to come at a certain time. Of course, people who were already in the high street would experience it didn't know it was going to be there but there might be some people that had come because they knew it was going to be at two o'clock on a Sunday or something. Yeah it was interesting what David actually came up with as a project because it's durational or it's it expands over one or two weeks the project and it actually markets itself so the first yeah. part of the project is not marketed at all so you find out you discover it 
and then you come back the following day and so the the all event was the final day was advertised but the lead up to the final day was only sort of spontaneous and uh, people right. start getting used to the idea that this show happens every day at that time and we're mainly playing with word of mouth which yeah. is actually really lovely because yeah. we, we, we could see people you know the audience or the spectators or the, the participants becoming bigger and bigger every day yes it gives such freedom doesn't it it's so liberating i think as well to take away that pressure of the ticket sales and just be delivering performance where it feels it should be Especially those people actually in the high street, you know, whether they're regular passerbys or people who are working in the shop, that, you know, at some point you go, oh, there they are again, and taking a break or sort of start following because they become so familiar and it's brilliant yeah. to see that. Yeah. And how about you, Franco? Am I right in thinking that all of your work is ticketed because of the headphones and everything else? Or is any of yours kind of rock up? They have all been ticketed, although some tickets have been for free, depending on the festival that's presenting. And so in the past, we have found that um, the tickets that were for free, they were sold out straight away, but right. then people didn't rock up. So there was a bit of an issue attached with commitment, which is a, sl a slight shame because obviously it's great when stuff is for free. I'm all for that. And I love that there's something about taking ownership of a show that is, you know, reliably presented at a square at a given time each week. And we were kind of at the beginning of doing that. We did some R&D for stations we did it without permission this time was a little bit under the radar and we had like a couple of people in big bear costumes and that, that was delivered via an app called wiretapper that delivers performance and sound at a particular time so you could you know buy a ticket for very little but everybody else yeah. would also see it and it was kind of working with the choreography of the commuters so you can imagine that that one had been exploded yeah. by the pandemic yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So because at Liverpool Street Station, for example, there's, um, what's that called, where you can look down yep. like a balcony. And then if you time the performance right, the six o'clock train would leave um, and lots of people would walk a particular way. And our performers would just do very small synchronized movements and all of a sudden stand out and then disappear in the crowd. And for some reason, this kind of appearing and disappearing was incredibly mm. emotional and beautiful, like this sort of bigger pattern or picture emerging and moments of connection that then fall away and then you just mm. really can't find them anymore. Gosh, we've missed that so much, so, haven't we? I wanted to ask you a bit more yeah. about that spatial relationship actually between the audience and the performer. You talk about that as mm. being integral to your practice and you've talked to us about the sound already and I imagine that that's an incredible tool that you use for drawing people into your work. And I was wondering how you might do that outdoors when the proscenium and the structure of a venue has gone, you know, that enforcing of everyone to sit down, sit still, the lights come down, it makes you focus. But you're doing that in a very clever way using sound. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, yes. Yeah, so this binaural sound recording uh, really puts you into the situation you want people to focus on. So it's done with this head that has a microphone on each side. So you can discern very accurately where the sound comes from. And so the whole of Electric Hotel is basically performers passing the sound from one person to the other, and you can follow the sound of the steps. It feels incredibly live, although it's pre-recorded. Lots of people assume that the sound is somehow created with microphones inside, which would be a nightmare, I think. <laughs> so instead, we have a different nightmare, I suppose, with the performers listening to right. click, click, open the door, click, click, close the door. 
I was looking at a video earlier just to remember, you know, it's, it's 10 years ago, that show. And Kate Jackson was in it and she had to burst a bubble gum. She had to blow a bubble on cue. So I just remember that was her rehearsal. She was just making bubbles on cue. <laughs> and so is that how they work then? The dancers have got just a click track that they're working with. Amazing. They have a bit of music and they have a click track. Often they have David go, <laughs> one, two. <laughs> Yeah, that's what happens to a greater yeah. or lesser extent. With Electric Hotel, it was very, very yeah. precise because the frame and where people were situated really lent itself to being very accurate with that. For the roof where an audience was standing in the middle and it was in the round where people had to move with the action, it was a bit harder to really, you know, get the binaural sound right. So we played more with music and songs, but there was also that element and in, in the motor show, it was very easy to make people look at the right car. You know, it was about the interior spaces of cars. And it was very easy to know if you're in the outside or if you're in a small interior yeah, space. Yeah, yeah. And Luca, talking about that relationship between audience and performer, I want to ask you about something. And the question comes from a memory I have of a project we did together, which was in Bath, where we worked for a day, maybe it was two days, with some local students to make some site-specific work in the town square. And the process was a masterclass for me because you painstakingly talked through the way in which you could reach and engage with people who were perhaps just sat in the town square innocently having some lunch. They weren't asking to be, you know, entertained. And the way you approached that interaction was an invitation. So it wasn't an infringement on their privacy in any way, but it was incredible to see how hard getting that right was and we were able to see how hard because we saw some of the students having a go <laughs> and some very annoyed members of the public hoffing up. I wondered where did you learn to do that and what would you say are the ingredients to that successful invitation to mm. someone that might not be asking to be invited into your cultural experience? Yeah, I, I think you actually I didn't remember that project <laughs> probably I removed it <laughs> but it's interesting it's invisible dancing we've been doing it for 10 years now you know quite often I don't know how many iteration of the show we did but some of those performers were there from the first project they became so good at it to really understand when is the right time to offer the invitation or move away or not reacting or just pretend nothing is happening. And actually, we have created a uh, scenes or uh, situations in which it's, it's just about that, pretending you're not there. So if someone starts looking at you, uh, move your focus away so they think you're just another person in the street. The first section actually is about trailing the public, so going on the public trails of energy, which is not copying, which is not mimicking, but it's just using the energy, the path of energy this a person creates when he walks along the high street and trying to follow that as if you are without, but that's the thing, we, without, and we spend so much time in trying, no, it, it looks so obvious now, you can't do that because you're annoying people. So you have to be very, very subtle. And it's amazing the amount of time it takes to look as if nothing is happening and without mm. knowing everyone. And of course, there are people reacting very different if they spot something. Some people, they really enjoy, they go for it. And you need to have a smile or you... That's actually, it's good that you remind me of that tryout with those students. And it's not something you can do in two days or even even in a week. It takes a lot of time right. to kind of find that detail, that nuance, that um, sensibility, really. Yeah. 
Yeah, that sounds lovely. It very much sounds like a sensibility, like you need the right kind of performer to pull that off. Somebody that can be so present. So that person stands out in the crowd and then yeah. just totally disappear. It's That's, amazing, isn't it? It's a particular performer. It comes back to, you know, sometimes when you go and see live comedy and if you're sat in the front row and you're always picked on, and I always think the worst comedians are the ones that get their cheap jokes from taking the mickey out of one or two people that haven't necessarily asked for it. And what I think people sometimes do with audience participation is follow that kind of line. You know, let's use these couple of people here at the front and we'll pull them in and they don't want to be and then you get that awful resistance and what Luca I think you do so beautifully is you're able to read that situation and those audience members and and I remember I think it was Matt Winston demonstrated for us on that project and he just did these gentle rolls along the floor and if somebody wanted to walk away they did and they could but if someone was intrigued they might move that little bit closer but he didn't go into yeah. their space which I thought was so clever and so refined as a technique. You play with You know, you never know what these people, because, you know, they're not ticket holders. Yeah. You actually interfere with their day. You know, they might be having a shit day or sorry, sugar day, or they might have any sort of, you know, issue they're dealing. So you can't really become too foolish. I don't know. You need to somehow play respectfully as well, because not yeah. everyone wants yeah. to also be so close. So sometimes people enjoy yeah. just watching, but from afar. Um, but then we always find that there's always someone that actually wants to join in, even if they're not invited, yeah. you know, and you just have to yeah. cope with whatever happens. You know, it's a reaction. It's a spontaneous reaction. Yeah. And Frauke, are you able to play with that or push that any further because your audience are kind of self-elected? They've bought a ticket. They know a little bit about the work, I would presume, before you buy a ticket. And they've come, they've put their headset on, they're in the space, they're ready for you. Are you able to push the experience for them in any way? Well, our shows are pre-recorded, so it's pretty much what we've decided. <laughs> so they're exactly the same every time in terms of audio content. Although two of those were seated and one that they were standing in the round. So there isn't that much leeway of participation. But we have been doing an R&D in the summer when we could just squeeze a little bit of time in when the pandemic was sort of, there was this moment in time where we could do a bit of work with a couple of dancers outside. And so this is um, a new project that's also by headphones where the audience gets different soundtracks and they're sort of performing a little bit for each other in a very gentle way. So there's more of that entering in. And what we have with that one is that kind of very gentle invitation to people that are not part of the audience as well mm. as people that are part of the audience. And, and everybody who is in the park or the public space becomes like somebody who is potentially involved. You just simply don't know. And, and there has been some work done of what it's like to sit down next to someone or dance for someone who's not part of it and how that person then becomes involuntarily so part of the action. And if that's yeah. desirable for that person and what to do if it isn't. So there's a level of respect there that we yes. are also interested well, exactly. in. I was also thinking it's so important to also take care of physical danger, especially if you're not performing on a devoted space, on a stage or sort of marked performance area. So most of the time we have to take really good care of not falling into people or stepping into people's foot or, or put people at danger, both for the performance and the public. So that's another element of awareness that... Is so important. You can't just be out of control. 
you know, you've got to be yeah. really in the spontaneity. You've got also to maintain this element of control, which is Safety. so important because, of course, when you have no barriers, you know, nothing that protects you. And we've been dealing also with sometimes potential attitudes from members of the public that looked quite sort of threatening. So how do you react? Mm. Clearly don't retaliate, just move away and, you know, smile and let it dissipate. But you can expect all sorts of different reactions, you know. So yeah. I think that's the one side yeah. of it's great, the audience participation, and I love it, absolutely love it. But there's an element of unpredictability. That you have to be prepared yeah. for. That moves me on to another question, actually, about some of the other logistical things that you need to think about you talked there about health and safety and care of your performers, care of the audience, which, of course, without that sort of safety net of seats and stage and proscenium, you need to think about. But I wondered, what else do you have to consider when you start thinking about making a piece of work that's going to be presented outside? What do you do about dressing rooms? What do you do about rest spaces? Frauke, what do you do if they got a shipping container of their own, perhaps, or a base space? yeah. I mean, luckily, there are the things that we need. And then there's a production team that solves the problem. And I imagine that much more creative job with the work that we do, because there's just so much to be sorted out. And sometimes things don't get sorted. So the last R&D, the show we're in the middle of, we're going to continue actually on Monday. I'm going to ask you about this. Um, finally, unbelievably so, in a very small way. But um, yay, there was a gazebo one day and the next day it was gone because <gasps> the wind just blew it away and, and there was another gazebo. And, and then, yeah, so it's usually a bit on the rough side for everyone. It's usually a bit inconvenient and very cold. Yeah. That's interesting to think about, though, huh? It's just how you manage that and set up the dancers' expectations, I suppose. Yes. I think it's very important to let the team know what they're in for and make yeah. sure that they're up for it. And you can sort of tell if the performer yeah. is yeah. up for it. <laughs> and I, I, I totally agree. There are certain performers that are not made to perform in the cold, in the hard floor. And that's why I tend to work with the same people on those kind of projects. They know what it is. And there are some performers that are more ready than others because you don't have the anything is, is comfortable. Of course, it could be like a lovely sunny day. It's not too hot, not too cold. Perfect. But most of the time, it's never perfect. It's windy, it could be windy, it could be cold, it could be wet. And you've yeah. got to really love it. You've got to love it. You have to be made yeah. for it. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I've talked on the podcast before about a tour that we did in autumn, a doorstep tour. And of course, the dancers were all in a van, just moving around from place to place. It's only a seven-minute show, but it was done on people's drives. So they've got to be ready for, you know, all of those sort of different hard surfaces. But one of the most inventive things that I found out at the end in the evaluation was that one of the rest spaces, the base spaces they'd used in the day was a holiday inn. And they just booked the room for the day, a couple of rooms for the dancers. And of course, they didn't stay the night, but they had this night warm <laughs> carpeted space where they could warm up they could lie on the bed they could do whatever they needed and that was a cancellation of a community center because their heating had gone down which would have been cold you know all of these things and I thought oh that's a bit of a genius little tip renting something like a, a holiday inn or premier inn might be a, a good way when you're trying to set this kind of stuff up 
I think comparing to putting on a show on a yeah. stage or rehearsing indoor, perhaps as a team, you always have to think a bit more about your performers, you know, provide even just to tell them extra layers or provide a warm drink every now and again. Mm-hmm. Or if you work in a theatre, perhaps people are looking after themselves. So you need to necessarily provide so much. Also done quite a lot of rural touring. You know, it's not outdoor, but it's not the conventional way of working. So you've got to take care of working on hard floors for many days, you know, how you can look after that, provide some mats or, you know, all sorts of different things that you have to think quite carefully about that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I find it's helpful to include the performers early on and think through if it's something that's really new, you know, what they might need. There might be things we didn't think about, you know how they can manage their energy levels and what they might need to have a good focus and work safely. And That's a really good idea. Yeah. And I suppose both of you are thinking about those things now because you're both about to go into the studio next week, I think. Frauke, am I right in thinking yours is a recreation of a work? No, so it's a new outdoor show on the back of a truck. So the idea is a truck drives in and the side opens and in it is a piece of science fiction. And we were kind of halfway through a bit more. Now looking back, I'm not sure how far we actually were. (laughs) But um, anyway, um, on Monday, we continue with that in a stripped down version. So it's COVID safe. It's again in a shipping container. It has um, the full length on a travelator all the way through that you can't see. And then there's a false wall like a runaround. It's the feeling of sort of infinite production line of what will become these people. And it's sort of an exploration of like, is the light on or off and what is consciousness? And so things are made, this machine is like, um, you can tell that (laughs) they're just making it, right? Because I'm not quite sure what it is yet. (laughs) This is sort of how we make work. We look at the perspective that we want and we find this very physical ingredients and um, a subject matter emerges that somehow comes from the setup. With this one, we had an R&D with people on the travelator, and it was immediately clear that there's something so fantastical and sci-fi about this somnambulant movement of the travelator, even if they move very fast because they're being transported. It already felt like very existential, like beginning and end. There's a constant end, but it's kind of infinite and questions around that. And there's a loneliness because yeah. now they also don't touch, you know, and they kind of play one person that is a kind of continuous person that, that goes through a very rapid evolution of yeah, sorts. Yeah. And what are the audience doing? Do they stand? Do they sit? Do they move around the venue? So at the moment, that is not entirely decided. It kind of depends a bit on capacity. I would imagine that the first shows have reduced capacity Usually our shows have about a 500 to 700 capacity, so there will definitely be less. And it is a little bit contingent Mm. on the site, if there will be a seated audience or if people will be standing. I don't think we really got to resolve that yet. I mean, to put on a show now, like, it just feels (laughs) just so far removed from... You know, just to go to the shop is a big deal. Like, it's kind of crazy. I I take my hat off to both of you. You're both about to do it. Like, literally, we're we're only just opening up. And there you go, bang, both of you in a studio. It's incredible. Luca, what's your piece about? Well, for us, it's outdoor. And the basic idea is to take an audience out for a walk. We will have a starting point and an ending point, probably a couple of hours, I would say. 
walking. And during this walk, there would be things to encounter, performers, events, music, and it's still to be filled up as an idea. But I just really was fascinated by the idea of the experience of walking and what it means to different people. And this will be in Woolwich, which is where we are based as a company. So through Woolwich, through the commons, probably down to the arsenal, to the river. So across the town centre. And yeah, it's um, it's a project that has been there for a while now thinking. And then, of course, because of last year, because of what's happening, it feels so important to actually do it now. And the main aim is to bring people back together. So performers together, audience together. And of course, like Farah was saying, you know, it's uncertain at the moment how many people we can gather, we can do this for, but it doesn't matter whether it's 30 people or, or three people or five, 50 people, I don't know, uh, we'll see. Yeah. And again, it's about using the space and responding to the space and what the performance can mm. do with the space. I think as an approach, it's going to be quite different from visible dancing, but um, of course there are some similarities in the sense that there isn't a preconceived stage people will be moving with us so they were actually good they're going to participate in a way audience and participants at the same time i'm interested in this because i know that you have an r&d process where you often spend a lot of time going out and meeting people before shows i'm sure many artists have this in some shape or form but i was honored to be invited to be part of that process so i went on a walk with you Mm -hmm. with my two boys and at the time i remember thinking how is this feeding you especially as you were trying to get something out of my boys I think that they weren't giving you know are you really enjoying your walk and they're both going it's boring we want to be on the Nintendo (laughs) so I didn't know what you were going to get from me your boys were very interesting about whether we're going no I'm not going there because there it's not I prefer that way so just the choices that we're making it was very interesting because a lack of light or because that is too steep or because I don't know all sorts of things that maybe an adult don't think about and how do you take all of that? So you went on lots of walks. How do you take all of that? And Yeah, I'm in the process to transcribe all the interviews I did during walking with different people. And it's, it's so nice to relieve those experiences, to listen to the sound or the steps or see sound or any kind of sound. So it brings you back there. I mean, probably what I'm going to take away is different experiences, not because I need to recreate them, but it just makes me, I don't know, it reaches my decision making in a way or my starting points in the studio with the performers. So I feel like I know a little bit more about what it means or what kind of experiences people have. But it's not because I'm going to actually use the material to restage that those ideas, you know. It... There won't be a little kid saying, I want to go and play Minecraft. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think You know, the research usually I'm doing is, for me, is a way of prepping myself, you know. Some people might spend a lot of time in reading books or watching stuff. I like to do that, but also I like to engage with people at the very, very start, even before I go into start working with the performers. And, and of course, the performance, and it would be very much about the people in the room. So they're going to have quite a strong input in what it will come out somehow. Yeah. And Frauke, your R&D must take a very different form, given that so much that you were talking about the Travelator and the Perspex screens and, and the set and what have you. What's your R&D process for this? And how much relationship do you need with the place that your transportable venue is going? Or perhaps you don't need that at all. It's just the space you're creating for yourself and your dancers, the little world that you've created within those four walls. 
Yes, I think it is a highly controlled environment that we yeah. are creating ourselves the way we want it. And the, the connection then happens, you know, with the audience as the show runs. And we have not been to all the places where it will be shown. So that element is in this work not so present. No, that's right. You've done some R&D for yes. this piece, haven't you? Was that just in a studio? Did you have much of a set? Do you get something mocked up or you're just playing with ideas? We had two weeks, um, which now feels like a very long time ago, two weeks with two casts on the Travelator in quite a rough space called Aglita. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to go back there with a container. We had a good chunk of rehearsal, interestingly, where we also did the roof, but the whole place had completely changed. What's that called? In, in the east of London, um, Beckton. The roof we did in, a, in an old warehouse that was about to be, I think, torn down. And then for Future Cargo, we came back and we actually had a space in the new development on exactly the same site, but... Um, it wasn't let yet, so it was an empty space. And that was our warm-up space. It was still pretty rough, or like concrete floor, which yeah. is really not great for dancers. And then a bit of wasteland where the container was placed. It was quite cold. <laughs> um, but the dancers are okay because they're in the container and you could warm it up quite well. And I imagine, I hate to bring up the B word, but I imagine that this idea of a transportable set for your outdoor work had the idea of international touring built within it. You could just take your venue and put it where it needs mm. to go. And I'm imagining... What is the B word? Oh, Brexit. <laughs> All right, yes, of course. Oh no, why did I ask? <laughs> You've said it now, we're ever cursed. <laughs> But international touring, let's not go there. That is a different podcast episode. But I did wonder whether <laughs> this idea of a venue that you transport actually provides a solution as we continue to live with COVID because you've created your bubble in a way with for your performers. You can clean it as you need to clean it. You're not going into anyone else's space. It seems to be like you're minimising risk of transmission because you're keeping everything self-contained, as you said. And I just wondered whether your team was thinking around that in any way or are you just thinking about Monday morning and rehearsals? So we did not think about that because the show was envisioned yeah. way before the pandemic. The thing that we did think about this time was tourability because our shows have been a nightmare to tour they're very complicated and they're very heavy and they're very expensive to tour so we, we just wanted to be for a change a bit lighter on our feet so we had this idea of you know putting it on the back of a truck and so that that was one consideration and this sort of mysterious object at the back of the truck nobody really knows what is in all yeah. those shipping containers um, and yeah so if it really makes touring COVID safer, people will still have to go to the loo. They will still have to warm up in a different space. They will still have to get to that country. I think it's just a big shit and something that will hopefully get controlled enough for the risk to be acceptable like other risks we take. Yeah, yeah. And Luca, for you, was the plan always to create this work or is this also being driven for you by the pandemic? No, it was before pandemic, uh, the idea of a walking piece or experience. Uh, it was for the Greenwich City of Culture or Borough Culture. We were asked to put together a programme for that application and then Greenwich didn't get it. So we had this project there in our heads, in our heart, and then we thought, let's not throw it away, actually. Maybe this is actually the right time. Trying to make work for the stage right now is very unpredictable. 
it feels safer to work outdoor at the moment, you know. Yeah. So that's what we thought, actually, let's invest, let's put all our effort to try to make this happen now. But the idea is to have a touring piece, so we want uh, to do iteration in other places, working with other communities. So it's not an emergency kind of, oh, because we don't know what to do kind of piece. Because we can still working with social distancing and it's easier at the moment if you are outdoor you'd get less frustrated about not being able to do any contact work yeah. and also you can maintain a distance yeah. between people in a more relaxed way and also being outdoor the risk of passing the virus is reduced so it's kind of feels like it's responding to the time yeah. we're in but it's not necessarily about the time we're in no and so finally i wanted to ask you both if the pandemic meant that theatres could never again open their doors, could outdoor work fill the gap? And could you ever imagine a world where that was the only work you made? Luca? Well, I hope not. <laughs> I adore working outdoors and it's beautiful. It makes you feel um, very special. Uh, performing outdoor is also something quite unique, but I still think theatre and enclosed space can give you, it's a different type of experience. And I love the magic or the the travel that you do with, with your mind, with imagination in a theatre, both as a performer and an audience. So I still would like to think that there is space for that kind of experience. I mean, it's, it would be fine, but it still it would be a shame to... It's like if you say, well, would you see dance just becoming like a, something on, on film? Dance on film is fantastic, but I think it would be a shame to miss the live experience. So hopefully not. Yeah. <laughs> Long life to outdoor work and outdoor. You know. <laughs> and thank God for yeah, it yeah. and the, and the way it's, it's been pushed as an art form, actually. I didn't ask you, but you were both doing this over 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and I wondered how many people were doing it then. And now it is much more common. There are many more people doing it, I imagine. There'll be many more that are doing it this year in 2021. It will be the year year of the outdoor work. Yeah, for Franca, sure. how about you? Well, I second, I basically second what Lucas said. I think it would be terrible if there were no theatres from both perspectives, as a performer, as a maker, as, a, as an audience member. I love the smell of the Barbican, Settlers Wells, the place, all those lovely theatres. I just love the atmosphere of the theatre and... That's where the stuff happens. It's also what they stand for. There are spaces for this kind of stuff and it's important. At the same time, if I get enough money, I can imagine all sorts of structures that are not in the theatre. And there's some sort of like, how do you say it? Like when the bee goes and... Pollinating. And puts the pollen around. Yeah, cross-pollination. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> From the outdoor work and to going back indoors and finding more creative ways to deal with the space. That seems to be also be quite popular. And we also did that. We did a show where the seats were pushed back and people were standing around a platform yeah. and everything came from underneath. So that was our only indoor show. We call it an indoor show. We don't call it a theater show. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> and I, I think about this sort of actually the crossing between the two. And it's so important also to think in terms of what we talked earlier about performers capabilities and you learn so much about empathy when you're working outdoor for mm. the environment for the people around you and it's so beautiful to think that you can transfer those skills and that kind of sensibility also in the work that you do indoor maybe not so close to the audience so i think they go hand in hand and there is a lot of lot of things you you can really develop performers and creators 
in thinking outside your box, you know, literally. And so I think it's important that uh, mm. that's a very lovely aspect that one, but the cross pollination. I think you've just both of you created uh, options for the title for this episode: cross pollination or outside the box. So that feels like a really good place to stop. <laughs> if you'd like to hear more episodes about subjects moving artists of today, search for Talking Moves wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and spread the word. And for more information about Frauke and Luca, head on over to GreenwichDance.org.uk. And do remember, if you know someone you think we should talk to or have a topic you'd like us to talk about, please tweet us at Greenwich Dance. But for today, that's it from us. And do join us next time for more Talking Moves. Bye. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so very much. So exciting to be here.